My name is Keith Groves. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of bringing you God's Word this morning. So uh, isn't it interesting, as we finished up the wilderness and learning about the benefits of being in the wilderness, we finally get some rain. And God takes care of those things, doesn't he? Yeah, in the first century, in the Roman world, the Roman soldiers would be inspected by the centurion. And the centurion would walk up to each one of the soldiers, and he would then uh, hit them in the chest area. And if he heard the right sound from the armor that they were wearing, he would say this word, integritas, integritas, which of course is the Latin word for wholesome or sound. In other words, what he was doing was checking to make sure the armor was appropriate to guard the heart of that soldier that was going to be fighting for the empire. You see, the heart is the place, well, it's the center of us. And uh, we're continuing on in the previous part of this chapter. Jesus talks about how we need to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and our mind. And now he's talking about how the center of our person, the, the, where the place of our desires, of our will, of who we really are deep down in our soul, the heart, not just talking about an organ, but the depths of our inner being is what Jesus is talking about. And the coming of Jesus reveals some greater things from God for us. And today, we're going to hear about these things. And here's a phrase you're going to hear uh, this morning over and over. Jesus sees and he knows. Jesus sees and he knows. We're going to observe that in our text this morning. It's interesting because uh, here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You see, God knows the depths of our hearts. He knows what's there. And we're going to look at that this morning. Our text reveals to us three things this morning that we're going to look at. First of all, Jesus reveals a greater Christ. Then he reveals a greater condemnation. And then he reveals a greater commitment. A greater commitment. Now, that's an interesting grouping of words, isn't it? A, a Christ, a condemnation, and a commitment. But we're going to examine that this morning. We're starting into a new series called King's Cross. King's Cross, this is a, a, a series that examines Jesus heading toward his ultimate destiny, which, of course, is the cross upon which he was crucified. And so we're going to be looking at that in Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 35. So we'll be in Mark 12, 35 through 44. If you want to follow along, you're welcome to. Or if you would, please stand as we read God's word together. Mark 12, starting with verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your, en my en your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who, walk, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. 
Many rich people put in large sums, and the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those contributing in the offering box. For they have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. These are God's word. Please be seated. So we find out there that Jesus reveals some very, very interesting things that we're going to look at. Uh, It's interesting because up to this point, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been trying to trip up Jesus and trying to uh, just see if they could trap him with difficult questions like the temple tax. Should we pay the temple tax? And Jesus said, show me a coin. They handed him a coin and he looked at it and said, whose inscription's on, on here? And they said, well, it's Caesar. He said, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And they were amazed. So now, though, Jesus is turning the tables on these guys. And he's starting to ask them really, really difficult and deep questions. And so the first thing that we see that Jesus reveals is a a greater Christ, a greater Christ. It says here, how can the scribes and the Pharisees say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the spirit said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. You see, he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means the anointed one, the one sent from from God. And, and notice, he talks then about how the King David, who is a great man, one of the greatest kings of Israel, and how he calls him Lord. Because the king was promised, David was promised by God, that he would have a descendant on his throne forever. And the prophets even prophesied about that. But then he says, what was it he called him? He called him Lord. He says his Lord to, he called him Lord. And Lord means master or one who is in control or who holds the power. See, what was going on here is the scribes were emphasizing the the descendant of David, the descendant of David. They were emphasizing the humanity of the one who was supposed to be the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, who is coming. They were emphasizing his personage and the lineage that he had. Whereas what, uh, what Jesus quotes here is trying to help them to see is David was not just quoting the fact that he would be a descendant, but that he calls him Lord. That means he is the one who is in control. He's emphasizing the divinity of Christ, his might and his majesty, not just who he would be a descendant of. Interesting in there too, Jesus, uh, when he says that, he says David himself in the spirit declared this. And then he quotes a scripture, that passage there from uh, Psalm 110 verse 1. So even Jesus is saying God's word is divinely inspired and, and man, men wrote down what God wanted them to, to write. So he says he calls him not just king, not just Christ, but he calls him Lord, the one who is in complete control. John in the in, uh, in book of Revelation said these words. John is writing to the seven churches in Asia. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
You see, Jesus is trying to get them to see that David wasn't just talking about somebody who was important as his descendant, but he was somebody who was greater than all the kings of the earth because he's Lord and master of them. Lord and master of them. You see, Jesus sees and he knows their hearts. Here's a question for us this morning. I like to ask questions, by the way. Uh, those of you who have heard me before know that. Um, who do you follow as the one who determines what you do in your life? Who or what are you and I following today? Who is the main master or Lord of our lives? We're going to look at that even more deeply this morning. So Jesus not only reveals a greater Christ, the, the second point this morning is that Jesus reveals a greater condemnation. In verses 38 through 40, it says, And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and like greeting in mark places, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and make pretense, or for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He says, beware. That word for beware means to watch out or observe very, very closely. We need to be looking at those who are leading us and guiding us. Uh, and, and that's what Jesus is saying to them. What were these scribes in, uh, wanting, these religious scholars of the law? What was it they wanted? Well, they wanted attention and authority. That's why they wore these robes. They wanted greetings, okay, kind of like Norm when he walks into Cheers. You know, they, they wanted people to greet them. In fact, the, the appropriate thing to do was to actually rise when they walked into the room. They wanted the best seats or the places of honor. It's kind of like today. They would not sit any place except on the 50-yard line or at center court or in a box seat that's way up high where you can see everything. Nothing less for these guys. Anything else was intolerable. They wanted... Uh, money, because they were willing to even swindle widows out of their homes. And they wanted to appear religious because they were proud, arrogant, uncaring, and powerful men. Now, how, how do we apply this part here where Jesus says, beware? Well, number one, we need to beware of those who put on a show. Have you ever seen on TV any guys who seem to be putting on a religious show? Anybody ever seen that? Yeah. We need to be aware of people who are just putting on a show. They're actors or pretenders. You know, bling is not something new. It's just done in different ways today. Back then, their bling was, were these robes. These robes that were really long and flowing and way different than what everybody else would wear. They loved titles. It was important to them. Now, did Jesus actually say, the greatest among you will have the most money? You'll have the best cars, you'll have the biggest houses. No. In fact, what did he say? He said, the greatest among you will be what? Your servant. The greatest among you will be the one who serves you. If you want to be great, that's who you'll be. I remember one time, um, I, not long after I transferred from Ohio State University to Kentucky Christian uh, University, I, uh, I got an assignment in my English class, and I said, oh, wow, I already wrote a paper at Ohio State that, that fits in there with that really well. So I went to my professor. I said, hey, I wrote a, a, a paper for this class at Ohio State. Can I redo it a little bit, tweak it, and, and then turn it in? She said, sure, go ahead. Just make sure you, you, know, you make it as best you can to fit our topic. And so I did that. And at Ohio State, I got an A, A plus on it. 
So I turned in my paper and I got my paper back and it says C+. And I have to be honest with you, my first reaction was, wait a minute, I went to the Ohio State University. <laughs> and I got an A. And I go to Podunk College in, Col in Kentucky and I get a C. And then after I got over that stupidity there, I said, all right, you, you need to find out what's going on here. So I went and asked my professor. And, and, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, well, look it over. And I looked it over. I said, well, looks fairly good. I, I tweaked, made some improvements on it. She said, what do you notice about the verbs? And I said, well, I don't know. She said, well, if you want to be a good writer, you can't always use is, was, and were. You need to use action verbs. Verbs that show what's happening here. She said, you're right, it was a fairly well-written paper, except for that. There are way too many is, was, and words. You need to stop using that if you want to be a good writer. And to this day, I credit that professor at this small college for helping me to become a better writer. See, it wasn't about the name of the college or the prestige of the college. We need to beware of those putting on a show. We also need to beware of those who take advantage of others. These men were devouring widows' homes. They were abusing the most vulnerable people in society and taking advantage of them because of their power. And then we also need to beware of those who promote piety. Piety. That word that's used there in this text about pretense, it says, and for a pretense they make long prayers. In other words, they wanted people to see them. That word for pretense actually means to appear to shine before. So they wanted people to say, man, that guy knows how to pray. It wasn't about actually praying for the people. It was about making a good impression with the prayer to these guys. Jesus said this in quoting from the Old Testament. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. And then the fourth thing we need to be aware of is, and notice what we're talking about here. He says at the end of that passage, uh, he says, they will receive the greater condemnation. The greater condemnation. We need to be aware of the judgment that God has that awaits all of us. All of us have to give an account of our lives before God. And it's either, hey, Jesus is my Lord and Savior and has cleansed me of all my sin. Okay, come on in. Or it's, Tell me about your life and why you made these choices, and I'm sorry. It's one of those two responses that we'll hear. We're here. That's why uh, Luke wrote these words, much is required of everyone who is given much. Much is required of everyone who is given much. Not many of you, James said, should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's why it's so key that those of us who are up here doing what I'm doing right now, we need to make sure we're true to the text, that we're saying what God wants us to say, that we're not just up here giving you our own personal advice, but we're giving you direction from the Lord God and from His will, because there will be a greater judgment on us. That condemnation, that judgment, that sentence is greater. That's why he's emphasizing here, we need to be real and genuine from the heart, not just pretending. Because he sees and he knows. Question time. How real is your faith and my faith? 
How real is our relationship with Jesus? How personal is that relationship with Jesus? Or are we only Sunday Christians? Sunday Christians. You know, on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we're way different than we are on Sunday. How are we? Are we different? I remember one time I, I was serving in another church and my daughter came home from college. And uh, she said, Dad, I'm really concerned. I said, why? She said, well, we're, we're here. She was, she was down at uh, that little college in Bloomington. And, uh, and she said, uh, listen, I, I'm seeing all my, all my friends from youth group and they're out and they're doing all kinds of things I know they wouldn't do at home in front of their parents. And some of these things are embarrassing. Now, I know my daughter wasn't a perfect angel in college either. But I appreciate the fact that she was at least noticing those things. And realizing that a lot of her friends were just pretending to be Christians when they needed to. But their faith wasn't real, wasn't heartfelt, wasn't deep down in because they were living as if there was really no faith most of the time, except when they were with their parents. And some of them happened to be leaders in the church. Or when they were just with uh, their church family. So Jesus reveals a greater Christ and a greater condemnation for those who are pretenders. And then Jesus also reveals the last one is a greater commitment. A greater commitment. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting in money in the offering box. And it says, uh, many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came, put in two copper coins, which make a penny. And he called the disciples to him and said, Truly, I tell you, the poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. They contribute out of the abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, all that she had, to live on. The poor widow was completely all in on following God. Every aspect of her life. Now, we've kind of hit on this, but do you understand how a lot of times we Americans like to compartmentalize things, don't we? And we even try to take our faith and say, well, my faith is for here, here, and here, but not for here. You see, it's like we say, this is the secular part of me, and this is the sacred part of me. But I want to remind us that this morning, all of us who are Christians, who are Christ followers, who have the Holy Spirit of God living in us, there is no such thing as a part that's not sacred. Because according to the Scripture, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So wherever I go, whatever I say, whatever I think, God knows and he sees. And so I can't say this is secular and this is sacred. Everything in my life has a sacred aspect to it. One man said it this way, show me your calendar and show me your bank account and I can see where your truest heart is revealed. Your truest heart is revealed. It's laid open there. Jesus said something very similar to that. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, he says, where your treasure is, there is what? Your heart also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And what's happening here is Jesus is observing the treasury. Now, in that, in that treasury area, there were 13 different chests, and there were guards there who guarded those chests. And these chests, inside the chest, they were kind of shaped like a trumpet so that when the coins dropped in, it made more noise. So you could always tell when people were giving a lot of money because it was making a lot of noise. 
And this widow, the poor widow, drops in two copper or bronze coins, make up about one penny, about 10 minutes worth of work in those days. And it was called a lepton, or a mite, a widow's mite. In fact, we have pictures of those. When we were over in Israel, uh, uh, that's my wife uh, holding a, a real one. This is not a, a replica, it's a real one. Notice it has a star on one side and an anchor on the other. And these were the coins that she dropped in there, just two of those little tiny things. Yeah, over in Israel, it's like, like the pennies that we have there everywhere. And that's what she put in there. By the way, we have a replica of these for you today. So one per family. As you leave this morning, I want to encourage you, uh, let's have the adults, if you would please, one adult per family. We'll have some folks at the back door. You can grab one of these. And hopefully it will remind you uh, of this widow and her faith and dedication to God and what we've talked about this morning. But you're welcome to take one of those on the way out and then make sure you pick up your prayer chain as well. Then the interesting thing happened. Jesus calls his disciples over. He says, come here, guys. Let's talk about this. Notice, these guys gave out of the abundance. They have a lot to give, so it was easy for them to give. But this woman gave all that she had. She had to wonder, where's my next meal coming from? What's going to happen to me? This is all that I have. Have you ever been in that situation? I first learned this back in 1982. I was a young adult working in a part-time youth ministry making a whopping $75 a week. But they did provide an apartment for me that summer. And, uh, and I just, I, I remember uh, going to church that one day and we had a special speaker who was a missionary and I had the money in my pocket for lunch and it was $5 and I remember $5 used to buy you a really good lunch. And, uh, and, and I, I just thought, ah, I, you know, this missionary needs this worse than I do. So I put it in there. And then an interesting thing happened. On the way out that, 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 that day, uh, uh, sweet old Mr. Coffee, that was his name, he, he had his cane, he walked up to me, he went and shake, shook my hand and handed me some money. He said, you go out and get something to eat. You see, God was faithful. He took care of me. I'm sure God took care of that widow that Jesus was making note of that we're talking about some 2,000 years later. Because remember, God is always faithful. He sees and he knows. So that leads to this question. What is God's purpose for money and possession? What is God's purpose for money and possessions that we have? Well, it's very simply put, it's to supply needs and accomplish God's will. Supply needs and accomplish God's will. Read through 2 Corinthians chapter 9. gives you all the details on that. Uh, we don't have time to go through all that this morning. But Ron Blue, uh, who's a financial guy, uh, said that the impact of understanding God's purpose for money and possessions will lead us to three realizations. One is, we realize that God owns everything. It's all His. So what, whenever He wants it, He can ask for it. And whenever He wants to take it away, He can do that. Because remember, He's our Lord, the one who has all the control. How much do we bring into this world? Zero. How much do we take out of this world? Zero. King Tut helped us to understand that because we found all his good stuff, right? He thought he was taking it with him. You see, we brought nothing into this world. We can take nothing out of this world except those things of eternal value that we've sent ahead 
of ourselves, and they're not material things, of course. We need to realize God owns everything. We need to remember, and, and this is important, remember that receiving money, giving money, and spending money is a spiritual decision. It's a spiritual decision. It's not just something over here that, yeah, I can do willy-nilly, but I need to take seriously what I do as far as my giving to God. No. Whether we are receiving or whether we're giving or whether we're spending money, it's all a spiritual decision. We are stewards of what God provides for us, and someday there will be a spiritual audit. A spiritual audit. I don't know about you guys, I've been audited twice. One of them because of a... uh, uh, an interesting church treasurer from Kentucky. Uh, <laughs> but in both of those audits, I came out good. In fact, the last one, they owed me $35. <laughs> but we're all going to be audited spiritually by God. What did you do with the money and the possessions that I gave to you to use? How did you use them? And then we need to recognize that we cannot fake stewardship because bank accounts don't lie. And calendars don't lie. In a criminal investigation, what's a good phrase that you always hear? Follow the what? Follow the money. It doesn't lie. It tells us the truth. He sees and he knows. Paul wrote to young Timothy, he said, Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now notice, it's not money that's evil. Money itself is is neutral. But it's the love of money. And then we see here in Luke, uh, Luke records these words, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things that ridiculed Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows what? Your hearts. Your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So, That leads to another question. How do I know then if I'm letting money or possessions control me instead of me controlling it the way God wants it to be controlled? What are some indications of financial bondage? Here are some questions to consider. Do you place more faith in your material goods than you do in the Heavenly Father? Another question. If you can't quickly purchase your latest desire How much does that affect your your attitude and your demeanor around those around you? Do you want to get rich quick? And then this is that old phrase, you've gone from preaching to meddling. Do you have to delay due bills or shuffle payments? Do you have to delay due bills or shuffle payments? Or have you compromised Christian principles for the sake of money? Do you adequately save for future needs? And do you give because you have to rather than you want to? Those are just a few of those indicators. You know, life can be tough sometimes, financially, right? And there are a lot of challenges that we face. That's why we offer the Financial Peace University class that hopefully we'll be uh, offering here soon for people who are in need of help in getting out of debt. 
So how do I develop this grace of giving? How do I de develop the concept of giving by grace? Number one, give yourself fully to the Lord. It's interesting when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, you see here the, the church of Macedonia, and they are described as people of extreme poverty, but they gave generously to Paul's cause. They gave generously because they gave themselves first to the Lord. You see, it's not the amount we give that's important to God. It's our heart's intent. It's our heart's intent. What is the, the heart's intent? Um, anybody in here parents? Yeah. Now, you don't have to tell me about the specific gift, but think back to a gift that one of your children gave to you. You know, the interesting thing about uh, kids giving us gifts, they don't have to be the best built or the most elaborate, do they? We just want something that comes from their heart. God is the same way. He cares about the giver, not just the gift. And so just like we love some things that somebody will look at and say, what in the world do you have that on your refrigerator for? Well, because my child made that for me. It means something significant to us. It's an act of love, a demonstration. So we give ourselves fully to the Lord. And then we need to give like this widow did. And she gave sacrificially, not of her excess, not of her leftovers. You ever get at the end of the month and say, oh yeah, I, I should probably give something to the Lord? I hope not. Because we should be thinking, first of all, when we get the, our, our money, when we look at our bank account, we should be saying, okay, God has provided for me. What do I give to him first? Then I take care of the other thing. What do I give first? Because even a little bit will honor God. We need to trust in him and let him be faithful because I can share from personal experience, God is always faithful if we are faithful to him. And even when we're not faithful to him, he is still faithful according to scripture. He is faithful. Then we need to give ourselves a heart check. Give myself one. You see, God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. That's why Paul told the Corinthian church on the first day of the week, set apart the money that you're going to give for this offering. That's why we do that. Set apart. Live within your means is another one. Proverbs says this, the borrower is the slave to the lender. And... Uh, in Romans chapter 13, Paul says this, Owe no man anything except to love one another. Owe no man anything except to love one another. Now what's the result of us giving like this widow and, and using this kind of grace giving, not just about money, because we need to give, I think I missed that one, we need to give more than just money. We need to give time abilities and our service because god is interested in more than just our money the church is interested in more than just our money god is interested in where's our heart and how are we serving others within the church and how are we serving the lord god and what's the result we are personally blessed by god i could give you story after story of how god has taken care of me throughout the years Amazing things. I never thought he could or would do, but he did.
You see, we get blessings, and those blessings bless the Lord, they bless other people, and they bless ourselves as well. And then we have the joy of generosity. The joy of generosity. How many of you have ever seen a Scrooge portrayed on, on a movie or TV that, that smiles? Yeah. Misers don't smile. They're sad, miserable people because they're always trying to hold on to what isn't really theirs anyway. The joy of generosity. The psalmist wrote it this way, Psalm 44. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows what? The secrets of the heart. He sees and he knows. That's why Jesus talked about, he, he, he reveals this great, greater Christ. The one who's not just king, but he is Lord. And the greater condemnation to those who are intentional pretenders, not having a genuine faith. And how there is a greater commitment, and those who have that greater commitment are, are rewarded because they really love Jesus. The widow gave all she had. About a week later in this passage, we see that Jesus gave all he had too. He gave his life for you and for me. Why? Not so we could play church, not so we could enjoy rituals or traditions of religion, but to restore the broken relationship we had with God because of sin. Sin. Uh, spell the word sin with me, if you would, please. Ready? S-I-N. What's the word or the letter in the middle? I. Yeah. When I sin, it's because I choose to do what I want whether or not it's pleasing to God. And what I want is always not what's best for me, but God always wants what's best for me. The reality is we've all done wrong in God's eyes. We all have real guilt and real shame because of these real sins that we've committed. All of us at one time or another are pretenders. Some of us even pretend to think, hey, I'm a good person and that's good enough, but it's not. That's why we need this real Savior, the one who lived a truly perfect, sinless life and who died on the cross for us, who was buried and who rose from the dead and who is alive today. In our trip to Israel earlier this year, there was zero doubt of the people there. Uh, I never heard anybody say, hey, Jesus never really lived here. They all know that he did. They believe it. It, it is a historical fact that Jesus lived over in the land of Palestine and walked those streets. The sad thing is many people miss that he was more than just a good teacher. He is our redeemer who bought us, bought us back and brought us back to God from the control of Satan. I know many of you have seen this picture before. This is a picture of Jesus standing at the door and he's, he's, what's he doing there? He's just knocking, right? Have you ever looked at this picture very closely before? What do you notice is not there? There is no door handle on the outside of this door. Why? Because Jesus doesn't beat down the door to get into your heart. He doesn't want to force you to follow him. Instead, the Holy Spirit stirs our heart so that when we feel God's prompting, we say, I want to open that door and let Jesus into my life. 
I want to let Jesus into my heart. I want him to be the one who controls me. I want him to be my Lord, not just my Savior, but the one who controls me and shows me his love. I want to reach out and know him personally. How is that possible? We need to admit our sin, turn from our selfishness, place our faith and true belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, believe that he died, he rose again, and he is alive today, and put our faith and trust in him. Commit our whole life, our whole heart, and our very being to him. And trust in him so that we fling that door open saying, come on, I want you in my life. I want you in my life. I want you because you see me and you know me anyway. You know, many of us here have already flung that door open, haven't we? We've, we've opened that door for Jesus and said, come in, be here with me. Gratitude. Gratitude for that greater Christ. Gratitude for the fact that we don't have to experience that condemnation of being a pretender. And gratitude for knowing that we have a greater commitment and love for Christ. And we can show that. By the way we serve, by the things that we say, by the things that we give. Gratitude reaffirms our trust in him. Jesus sees and knows the depths of our heart. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you that you are a God who doesn't just watch us, you don't just observe us, but you want to be actively involved in our lives. We thank you for that. We thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that he, he does, he knocks at the door of our hearts. Father, for those who are here this morning who haven't yet opened that door, we pray they would listen and yield to your Holy Spirit and open that door for Jesus to come in. May they have faith and trust in you. Lord God, for those of us who have already committed our lives to you, who have been identified with you through baptism, and who have just committed everything that we are to you, we just want to pray that you would help us to be grateful to you and to show you our love and our concern. Lord, thank you for the privilege that we have of knowing this greater Christ, Jesus. Of knowing that we don't have to experience that greater condemnation because we're not pretending. We want to be real before you. And Lord, thank you for Jesus' greater commitment that leads us to be greater in greater ways committed to you as well. So, Father, thank you for the privilege we have to know you, to love you, and to be loved by you. In Jesus' name we praise you and we thank you. Amen.